The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. This morning's scripture reading is from Joshua 2, 1 through 15, and Hebrews eleven thirty one. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. It was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house. For they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I did not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone. Before the men lay down, she came up uh, to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard now how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sion and and Og whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the the Lord that, as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house, and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and my mother my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life are yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. Hebrews eleven thirty one. By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. This is the word of the Lord. Praise to Christ. Thank you, Danny. That's a lot of oxygen, uh, reading that long passage. Two services in a row today. Uh, So, uh, good morning. Uh, I'm excited to uh, do sermon number two in a five-part series uh, called The Women Who Brought Us Jesus. And uh, last Sunday, if if you were here, you may remember Dr. Paul Lim preaching on Tamar. Uh, Tamar was a woman who pretended to be a prostitute in order to trick her father-in-law to solicit her services so that she would get pregnant by her father-in-law. And you may remember uh, Paul saying, maybe he just said this in the early service last week, uh, I'm not sure how to deal with this. And then I thought to myself, well, well how about me? Because 
you know, next week I'm going to be talking about a prostitute who told a lie and then got praised in the Bible for it. And then next week I'm going to talk about Bathsheba, who uh, it is said was the wife of Uriah, but had a child named Solomon through David. That's next week. And then we got Mary and Ruth after that. Uh, And, you know, this whole series is actually bringing me back to a quote from C.S. Lewis, who said that Christianity has to be true because no mere human being would ever invent this stuff. You can't make this stuff up. And yet this stuff, speaking personally, is my favorite thing about the Bible. My favorite thing about the Bible is that the greater the damage, the greater the honor, it seems, that is brought into a person's life and story. It's the sinners, it's the sufferers, and it's the underdogs that we find over and over and over again right in the dead center of what God is up to in the world. And this is no exception. If we go to Matthew chapter 1, we get this whole list. It's the ancestry of Jesus and five women are mentioned, and none of them are the, the classic esteemed matriarchs that people would expect, like Sarah, Rebecca, or Rachel. Philip Yancey, who's uh, you know, for a long time been a, been a Christian writer, uh, recently wrote, I think he's in his 70s now, a memoir on his life. And in that memoir, he said this, over the years, I have come to know a God who has a soft spot for rebels, who recruits people like the adulterer David, the whiner Jeremiah, the traitor Peter, and the human rights abuser Saul of Tarsus. I have come to know a God whose son made prodigals the heroes of his stories and the trophies of his ministry. Could that God find a place for a cynical sneak like me? That's why these kinds of stories are my favorite ones in the Bible, because it gives me hope for myself. In the same way that it gives Philip Yancey hope for himself as a, in his words, cynical sneak. So let's look at Rahab. Three points, a faithful deception, a curious alliance, and then a public demonstration. A faithful deception. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31 Uh, Danny Heron, I I, I appreciate Danny's restraint, by the way. He's a big Alabama guy. I was fully expecting him to say roll tide after yesterday's huge victory over Georgia, but he didn't. But Danny read this verse instead of saying roll tide. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. She had harbored Deceivers, that's the whole nature of a spy, is to deceive, right? That's what a spy does. And these spies, these Jewish spies were deputized by Joshua, who was the leader of the Israelite army, to survey a land called Jericho for conquest, for military conquest. And, and, And their cover, the cover that they sought, to prevent themselves from getting caught and exposed as spies was to seek lodging in what's described as an inn that is managed by this woman, Rahab. Now, in those days, probably as in any day, 
An inn that was managed by a prostitute, the, the, the modern terminology for that is brothel. Or, more crassly, whorehouse. That's where they went. And a rumor starts to spread, and the rumor gets to the king of this, this land here of Jericho. And the king comes to Rahab and says, men from Israel came here tonight to search out the land. That's the rumor. Now, of course, Rahab knows this, and by, by this time she has hidden the spies on her property. And she says to the king, it's true. These spies, these men, they came to me already tonight, but they have left. You should go pursue him. Now, let's pause for a second and think about what she's saying here. A prostitute says to the king, these men came to me tonight, this evening, and they're already gone. That can only mean one thing. They didn't come here for lodging. They didn't come here for a good night's sleep. It's still tonight, and they're already gone. And yet the narrator is very, very careful to not suggest illicit activity because no illicit activity happened between Rahab and these, uh, these spies from Israel. But they tried to make it appear that way. And the point here for Rahab is this. Here is a woman who is willing to take the scarlet letter A for adultery and wear it when in this particular instance she actually hadn't done anything along those lines. And in addition to that, in doing so, she is risking her life because she's actually committing treason against her own king and against her own homeland by protecting the spies. What could her motive have been? So the text is very clear what her motive was. Verses nine and following show that her motive was respect for the God of Israel. She says to the spies, We've heard how the Lord rescued Israel from Pharaoh. That's that miraculous event, right? That at this point in history had happened not long before, maybe 40-ish, a little bit less than 40-ish years prior, the Lord had, remember, split open the Red Sea. The Israelites escaped slavery from Pharaoh, and, and then the Lord covered over Pharaoh and uh, the, the pursuing armies of Egypt and destroyed them with those same waters. And Rahab didn't want any of that. She wanted to be on the right side of his story, the right side of God's story, the right side of history. She wanted to be on that side. And so she says, as soon as we heard about this Exodus event, our hearts melted. The Lord your God, she says to the Jewish spies, he is the God of heaven and earth. And so rather than she would rather risk the wrath of her king and risk being executed for treason. She would rather do that than find herself on the wrong side of God. You know, her intuition here is that the fear of God, which, which doesn't mean being afraid of God, fearing God means giving him weight, considering him to be the most weighty, the most significant being in the universe. And to have some, some degree of wonder and awe and reverence and respect and honor 
toward him in such a way that it affects the way that you live your life and the way that you make decisions and so on. She has this fear of God in, in those terms. And she recognizes that that kind of fear of God is actually her safety from the same God. Verses 12 and following, this is also remarkable. She doesn't ask for her own protection from these spies and from their God. Instead, she asks that her family be protected. Please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. Save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them. Deliver our lives from death. Okay, so there's a subtle ask for her own safety, but the emphasis here is on her family's safety. Now, how is her lie remembered in history? It's remembered as an act of faith. As Danny read uh, from Hebrews 11, she is honored for doing what she did and saying what she said in order to protect the Israelite spies. She's praised in the second chapter of James, and remember, James is the half-brother of Jesus, for her good work in doing this. And then she's placed by Matthew in Matthew's gospel in the lineage of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. Now, if you, if you read the details around Rahab in Matthew's lineage and put two and two together, it appears that she had actually done a career pivot sometime after this event from being a prostitute to being a vocational mother. In the lineage, we notice that she becomes the mother of Boaz. Now, David Filson will be talking about Boaz after Christmas, who is the self-appointed kinsman redeemer of a young woman named Ruth, who has clearly been steeped in Israelite history, uh, the Jewish scriptures, knowledge of Yahweh. Where did he get that from? Probably from his mama. That's where a lot of people get their faith is from their mamas. Not only is Rahab the mother of Boaz, it turns out in the same lineage that she ends up being the grandmother of David, the man after God's own heart. And so there appears to be some kind of pivot in her life. You know, Boaz, I mean, you know, Pearl Jam wrote, wrote a song about him, Can't Find a Better Man. It was about Boaz. Maybe not, but the description fits Boaz. And then, of course, David. Was her lie sinful? Was there any sin in deceiving her king? There was precedent, this kind of behavior in the Bible. In the first chapter of Exodus, it says that the Hebrew midwives lie in order to protect infants from Pharaoh's decree that all the infants be slaughtered. Moses was one of those infants who was protected by the midwives' lie. And then 1 Samuel 18, we see Jonathan, the son of Saul, the son of King Saul, lying to his father about the whereabouts of David, the heir apparent to the throne whom Saul is trying to kill. And so in both instances, people tell lies in order to protect other people from violence and from murder. 
If you've seen Schindler's List or read that story, you, you, you might remember during the Holocaust, it's a very real life person, Oscar Schindler, was routinely called a righteous Gentile by the Jewish people because of the way that he harbored and protected and concealed Jewish men, women, and children from the Nazis. So Jaron Bars, who's one of my mentors, uh, was one of my seminary professors about 120 years ago. Um, he wrote this book on the women in the Bible, and the chapter in Rahab, here's an excerpt from that chapter. He says, we can readily imagine, all of us can, lying in order to, pr to protect people from evil. In such situations, I do not think it is sufficient to only say that such lies are necessary or to say that they are justifiable sins. Rather, Jerem Barris goes on to say, I think we need to see such lies as Rahab's as truly virtuous, righteous acts. What, what, what's he getting at there? Could what he's saying be true? I think so. And here's why. Evil, malicious people are not entitled to the truth, especially if the truth will give oxygen to their evil and malice. And that's why Rahab's act is considered, even by the Bible itself, as a righteous act out of faith in the one true God. A faithful deception. So secondly, a curious alliance. Why do the servants of God, these spies, ask for help from a prostitute? They could have asked for help from anybody. But they asked for help from Roxanne, you know, from the, from the, the police song, right? Maybe it was because who they had come to know God to be. Because the Israelite history, the Jewish history, going all the way back to Egypt up to, the, up to the present time, is a history of God being kind to sinful people who don't deserve his kindness and sometimes spit in the face of his kindness. And, and also their own recent history. Remember that they're in the wilderness. They're still you know, in the midst of their 40 years in the desert when the spies go into the land and, and, and one of the things that the Israelite people do over and over and over and over and over again is grumble. They grumble. They whine and complain. They moan and groan. And, and, and you know, it says in Romans 1 that the, that the genesis of, of, of every sin that people commit is a lack of gratitude. A lack of gratitude, a, a lack of giving thanks to God. And, and the opposite of, of, of gratitude is grumbling. Griping. Now, there's a difference between groaning and griping. Groaning is legitimately grieving over the fact that the world and things are not the way they're meant to be, that the fall is real, that suffering is real, that sorrow is real, that sin is real. Groaning is perfectly legitimate. Even the Holy Spirit, Romans 8 tells us, groans. But griping or grumbling is a whole different story because griping and grumbling is built on the assumption that we think God got it wrong, that we think we could run the universe and we could certainly orchestrate the stories of our own lives better than God is at this point in time. Now, C.S. Lewis says that hell actually begins with this grumbling mood. You know, Lewis says it's not a question of God sending us to hell, 
as much as it is the fact that in each of us there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. And so maybe these, these Jewish spies are thinking, look, God has spared grumblers like us, so why wouldn't God spare a God-fearing prostitute in process, clearly? If he, would, if he would spare us in our grumbling, why wouldn't he spare her in her situation? You know, add to that what the late Francis Schaeffer said, Presbyterian minister, by the way. We like to claim him along with Tim Keller and Cheryl Crow. Francis Schaeffer, we are all prostitutes. We are all harlots. Each of us is a whore in the idolatry of our hearts. Sorry, kids. Might be a lunch conversation later on with mom and dad. But look, we already admitted it this morning, right? People come forward, first membership vow. Do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure and without hope except in his sovereign mercy? Do you? I do. We've already acknowledged what Schaefer said. There's actually an entire book of the Bible called Hosea where Gomer, who is a wife to this faithful husband named Hosea, gets a job on the side as a prostitute. And while Hosea biblically has every legitimate basis, if he desires it, to exit that marriage, to sue for divorce, to remarry, biblically he would have every legitimate basis to do that based on her infidelity. And yet the Lord comes to Hosea and says, I want you to be a special case here. I want you to stay faithful to her, even though she hasn't been faithful to you. I want you to be the bridegroom who chases after and loves his bride back to her own fidelity. Because what I need for your life to be, Hosea, for the rest of time, for the rest of history, and for the rest of the human race moving forward, I need your life to be a metaphor for the relationship between me and my people. They cheat on me all the time. They prostitute themselves against me all the time, and I am relentlessly faithful to them. Whole book, book of Hosea. And in that book, the Lord says, through this prophet, the people of Israel, all of them, have played the harlot. But then, in response to that, the Lord says through the same prophet, I will betroth you to me, O my people, O my faithless people, forever. I will betroth you in love and compassion. I will show my love to the one I called, not my loved one. I will say to those called, not my people, you are my people. And they will say, in response to my kindness, you are my God. Another thing to think about here is that you don't always know, and I don't always know, what's going on beneath the surface in somebody's life. I mean, last week's text, and, and you know, Paul Lim explained it really well to us, proves that. You've got Judah, this esteemed, publicly esteemed patriarch and, 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 and you know, anchor of 
of, of the spiritual life of Israel, but in his private life, he's soliciting a prostitute. And then you've got Tamar, who's pretending to be a prostitute in order to trick her father-in-law, Judah, into soliciting her so that she would get pregnant, so that she would be part of the family again, and instead of being out on the cold like they had left her after her husband, Judah's son, died. And then she's pregnant, and she comes forth, and she's exposed, and somebody tells Judah, and Judah says she should be killed. She should be put to death. And Tamar says, okay, father-in-law, but you're the father. Isn't it weird that you're going to be this child's father and grandfather? Isn't that a little strange? That's the situation. And what's his response? She is more righteous than I. We never know what's going on beneath the surface. Rahab and Tamar, just think about these women. One of them pretended to be a prostitute. One of them was a prostitute. The prostitutes in that time, and maybe, maybe in our time in certain places, are looked down upon as sort of the dregs of, of, of human immorality. You understand, right, that people get into this line of work not because they want more sex, but because they are trying to survive. You know that's why people get into this kind of work, right? Because they've been so beaten down, they've been so tossed out, they've been so discarded, they've been so kicked to the curb, they've been so enslaved, even in Green Hills, Tennessee, right behind the Trader Joe's, folks, major trafficking spot. All kinds of sting operations happen almost walking distance from where we are right now in the burbs. You think these women get into it because they're immoral? They get into it because they're desperate. Jesus sees that stuff. He knows that stuff. You ever wonder why he's so harsh with religious people and so gentle with prostitutes? We're thinking about. Things are not always as they seem. Maybe this is why the gospel has historically been so repulsive to smug, self-righteous religious people and so attractive to moral failures, to damaged people, to sinners, sufferers, and underdogs. Remember, it was Jesus himself who who's said to religious leaders, prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you are. So be careful who you judge, I think is, is an important message coming out of the ancestry of Christ. Be, be careful who you judge. So you can have, here, here's, here's an example. You, you can have two people, they're both traveling by car to Memphis. One of them starts in Los Angeles to get to Memphis. The other starts in Nashville to get to Memphis. Two and a half days pass, and the person in Nashville hasn't even left the station yet. The person in Nashville is still three, three and a half hours from Memphis, depending on how fast you drive. And the person from Los Angeles is now in Colorado on their way. The optics seem to indicate that the person in Nashville is closer to Chattanooga than the person in Colorado, closer to the kingdom of, you know, the Bible Belt, right? The Bible Belt has shifted from Nashville to Chattanooga. So, so closer to the Bible Belt, the buckle of the Bible Belt, than the person who started in California, when, when the fact of the matter is this person's come halfway, this person hasn't moved at all. 
Who's closer to the kingdom of God? Who's on the better trajectory? The optics don't tell the whole story. That's why, you know, as some people say, there are going to be three surprises when you get to heaven. Number one, there are going to be people there who you didn't think were going to be there. Number two, they're going to not be people there who you thought would surely be there. And your third surprise after observing that is going to be that you're there. Faithful deception, curious alliance, and finally, a public demonstration. Both Rahab and the spies are willing to be thought of publicly as participants in illicit activity in order to do the work of God. Does that sound familiar? Willing to be despised and rejected because of optics by men in order to do the will of God, who sees in secret and who honors his people in secret. And now in retrospect, Rahab, the spies, Bathsheba, Tamar, Mary, who was also accused of adultery even though she didn't commit it, Ruth, etc., they are honored both by history and by the pages of scripture. You remember the book of Hebrews says about Rahab by faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient but she, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. But it also says in that same book of Hebrews in chapter 2, verse 11, that the one who makes people holy, that's Jesus, and those who are made holy, that's people like Rahab, are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He's not ashamed to claim Rahab and Tamar and others. You know, Matthew, the tax collector, interestingly, is the one who provides this decorated lineage for us. Matthew, the tax collector. The one who understood on a personal and visceral level that Christ saves sinners or Christ saves no one at all. You know, the tax collector in that time was damaged, was considered a sinner, was a sufferer because of that, was a social underdog and outcast because of that, considered a treasonist, considered a betrayer to his own people by getting into bed with Rome. Matthew, the tax collector, is the one who gives us the genealogy because of who Matthew was but especially because of who Jesus was. Again, Isaiah 53, despised and rejected by men. Jesus took the scarlet letter on himself when he had done no wrong. In public, he took on the letter of shame, even though in private he had done nothing shameful and participated in nothing shameful. So that we, who have all kinds of secrets, who, as Schaefer said, are prostitutes and harlots and whores in our idolatries, could be publicly put on display as the men, women, and children about whom Jesus is proud to be associated with. It's a great, scandalous reversal. He is not ashamed to be your big brother. You know, your resume or your CV, whatever you, call it, whatever you want to call it, what, what do you put on your resume what you've done, 
what you've accomplished? What do you keep off of it? The places where you've screwed up, the places where you've made bad decisions and, and gone in a, you know, an embarrassing direction. You leave those things off of your resume and, and you put the, the praiseworthy things on there and maybe you embellish it a little bit too. Back then, it wasn't what you've done or accomplished as much as it was the people that you were from. It was like classic name dropping. These are my people. And that's what validates me. That, what, that's what legitimizes me. And as you might guess, they, they left the Cousin Eddies off of the list. And, you know, they, they, they put the, you know, untarnished celebrities on their list and nice people on their list. But Jesus, Jesus is more of a Garth Brooks kind of guy. I got friends in low places. You okay with that? Anything about you that's nervous to associate with that? Let's take it a step further. To be family with that? Let's take it another step further. To share a table with that? This is Jesus' resume. The people he left off were the esteemed ones like Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel and the ones that he put on there were the public trash like Tamar and Rahab and Bathsheba and company. As we approach the table, consider this. Jesus refers to himself as the bridegroom to those that he has called through his own prophet, prostitutes. And the first thing that he says in inviting those prostitutes who are also his bride to his table is, this is my body, take. Let that sink in. Could there be anything more sacred and anything more scandalous than those words? This is my body, And this is my blood. Take me inside of you. Do this in remembrance of me. And I will bear fruit into the world as I have with these women because I love to do scandalous, beautiful things through those who recognize that they are among the prostitutes and the harlots and the whores. Those are the only people I work with. Those are the only people I turn into celebrities. Those are the only people that you're going to see in glory are people who have recognized Rahab in themselves and have recognized rescue in me, the kinsman redeemer. Won't you come to Jesus now? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are scandalous. You couldn't be more scandalous. You are also beautiful and kind, and you couldn't be more beautiful and kind. And so we thank you. We marvel. We really are, maybe some of us, slack-jawed and speechless 
that the kind of love that you demonstrate and the kind of people to whom you demonstrate it to. Thank you that you are the God for tired, beaten down Pharisees and prostitutes and everyone in between and that the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus has taken care of all of that and then some. It's in Jesus' name that we thank you for these things. Amen.